Amen and amen. Let's pray yet again. And so, Father, take your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, make it clear to us, give us an understanding of what the writer's intent is, and then show us how to apply this to our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We are back in Hebrews after a four-week break. And as you position your notes, your pen, and I think your notes would actually be helpful today, even if that's not your norm, but you'll need to listen closely today. What a text we have, and there's a lot there uh, to unfold in this text. Before we enter into our message, uh, I was thinking about something that we used to do when I was a youth pastor um, years ago. Um, We developed, and I've shared this with some of you in the past, we developed uh, some characters among our youth staff, our volunteer youth staff, to help us and assist us to introduce some of our teaching concepts when we were teaching teens. So, for example, I developed a character named Fast Freddy, the used car salesman. And one of our young men who was on youth staff would wear a pinstripe suit. He pinned a bunch of watches on the inside. He had a, a bright tie, a lime green shirt, big old gob of purple bubble gum, slicked his hair back. And did he have a deal for you? And so if we were teaching on a concept challenging the young people not to be drawn away from Christ by things that uh, the world would present to them or philosophies that were anti-biblical, we might use Fast Freddy to come in with a great deal for you because there's always a great deal out there. There's always someone trying to influence your decision making. And so that would set up our teaching time. We had another character, uh, for example, that was Dr. Nicobod Peabody, and he was a nerd persona, and he was an atheistic, anti-God, evolution-spouting university professor, and we would bring him in for debates, and then we would turn to the scripture to see what was happening. The character that I was thinking about that applies to today's text is someone that you know pretty well. It was Pastor Everett. He used to be the manager of Floor Pools many years ago in the 90s. He was a volunteer on our youth staff. And I created a character for him that was called Captain Conviction. I had an old purple graduation robe, and we made a cape out of it. And I took a piece of cardboard and colored it yellow, yellow, and I had a big C on his chest. And we would set up a scenario when we were beginning to teach the teens, um, and, and we would set up like a little skit with some high school kids where some bad kids were trying to take down the good kids and tempt them with the things of this world. Uh, for our illustration this morning, just picture like somebody trying to get a kid to smoke a cigarette or something. And all of a sudden, with great entry, Pastor Everett would come swooping through and Captain Conviction would grab the cigarettes and rescue the young person from making the wrong life-altering decision. You see, you got to have convictions. And Captain Conviction would show up at just the nick of time and rescue him. And our teaching lesson would be that you have to build in convictions so that they rescue you from bad decisions. I want you to think about Captain Conviction swooping in and saving the day. And as we read our text today, and I'm warning you, it's a hard text. As we read our text today, I want you to picture Captain Salvation, Jesus, swooping in to save the day. And how he humbles himself unto death to take our sin upon himself to rescue 
humanoids. Captain Salvation is what our passage is about today. He's the hero. I want to read our text now, and and then I actually want to take just a minute, and I want to back up and take a running start at our Hebrew study again, and I want to remind you how we have to think about the book of Hebrews if we're going to understand what the writer is writing. Let's read our text. You follow along. He's going to quote four times from the Old Testament. Um, It's interesting. It's not easy. Uh, But it has some tremendous application to our lives. Our text today begins where we left off after chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We now pick up in chapter 2, verse 5, to the end of the chapter. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. That's God. God has not put the world to come of what we've been teaching about the world to come, future, time future, of which we speak in subjection to angels. Uh, But one testified, somewhere, somewhere, one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection to his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, man. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. I told you it was a hard text. Let's read that again. For in that he, God, put in subjection under him, man, he left nothing that is not put under him, man, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, man. But, verse 9, he interrupts, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, just like he just said, man was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting, it was appropriate for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the, here he is, the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers, saying, quoting from Psalm 22, I will declare your name, my brethren, to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, quoting from Second Samuel 22, I will put my trust in him. And again, quoting from Isaiah 8, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So in the same way that humans are flesh and blood, Jesus himself shared in flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all these things, 
He, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, us, redeemed ones, humans, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our ears, and may the Holy Spirit help us understand this passage. Now let's just take a running start and let's remind ourselves what we know about Hebrews so far. We don't know who wrote it. We really don't know who received it. It was a group of Jewish people who had come out of Judaism, who had gotten saved and were following Christ. But reminder number one in our notes, these Hebrew believers, remember as you read this book, these Hebrew believers were teetering on the edge of their faith. And the writer, who knows the recipients of the book, original recipients, very well, and they knew the writer. We don't know either one. The writer was afraid that they would abandon their faith in Christ and return to Judaism. You see, they had been saved out of following the law, keeping the feasts, keeping the calendar, trying to keep the law. Now Christ comes. He fulfills the law. The old covenant is done. He is now the new covenant is given. And we're under grace, not law. These people have accepted Christ. They're discouraged. They're going to go back to the way they grew up and were taught when they were grew up. It's easy to do. And not only that, when they became born-again Christians and became followers of Christ, somewhere, somewhere, someone along the line had come and evangelized them and taught them the basic fundamentals of following Christ. They got it. They accepted Christ. But now they're teetering on falling away for two reasons mainly. Number one, Nero's persecution had begun in the early church. All right, so it's easy to follow Jesus on a day like today when you get to listen to Pastor Van sing a few nice songs and go to IHOP. That ain't hard. But when you become a follower of Jesus Christ and you get a brick through the front window or your kids get beat up on the way home from school or you get abducted and murdered, or your business gets burned, or you get put in the Colosseum and eaten by lions, ah, now we're going to separate the sheep from the goats, let me tell you. And so it was beginning to cost them something. When you read the book of Hebrews, know that it was a struggling group of people under Nero's initial persecution. And so following Christ was maybe an iffy thing here. Not really sure if it's worth it. Add to that, number two in our notes, that they had a main theological problem that the writer addresses immediately when he begins to write the book. He doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't say hello to them hardly at all. He just starts in with this concept that angels are not greater than Christ. Christ is superior to angels. Look at number two in our notes. One of the big issues among these Hebrew believers is that they think that angels might be, in more, might be more important than Jesus. So as this letter begins, it begins with this theme in chapters 1 and today in chapter 2. The theme is that Jesus is superior to angels. So stop and think about it. Angels have access to the very throne room of God. Angels ministered to our Lord Jesus as he was Coming out of his 40-day fast in the wilderness, early in his ministry, 
And it says angels came and ministered to him. Angels, as we made note of earlier in the weeks before, angels were present with Moses on Mount Sinai when he received the law. Angels do battle in the book of Daniel with Satan and his warriors. Angels come with messages like to Mary and to Gideon and to Joseph. And angels are servants of the Lord back and forth. They're important. And in the mind of these Jewish Hebrew believers, angels were really, really important. Not so much us. We like angels. We like TV shows about angels. But we don't think of angels as being more important to Jesus. But you need to understand, A, the price that was being paid among them when they accepted Christ, it cost them something. Nero's persecution was starting. Two, number two in our notes, was the emphasis of this book immediately. You got to understand, why would God become a human when angels are even more important than humans? How could God become a human If angels are even more important, that doesn't make sense. And you want me to put my life on the line and follow someone who's not even as important as humans? And you're telling me Jesus is Captain Salvation? He's a human. Why would I follow that captain? And so number three, you need to understand as you approach this book that the doctrine of the incarnation that God put on flesh, incarnation means that God The second member of the Godhead, Jesus, stepped away from the throne out of the instruction of his father, humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, took upon himself the form of a servant human being, and he entered into our existence on this earth. God put on flesh. Go figure. Doesn't make sense. Didn't make sense to the Jewish believers. Especially if angels were even more important than humans, why would God become a human? So their minds are turning, they're being persecuted, and they think to themselves, I'm not sure this Jesus is all who he's cracked up to be. He's not even as important as an angel. So number three, again, in your notes, the doctrine of the incarnation is especially bothersome to them, and the fact that Jesus became human seems to be all the proof that they would need that Jesus was inferior to angels, because angels wouldn't become human. They don't have a body, they're extraterrestrial, they're metaphysical, and they're more cool and important than humans. Why would God become a human? That's a low down thing. And these Hebrew Jews could simply not comprehend how God could become a human being. And furthermore, they could not understand how God as a human being could be nailed to a cross and die. They heard it, they believed it, they followed it, but now they're questioning it. And the writer is explaining to them in chapter 2 why that is exactly why they should follow Christ, not leave Christ. The very fact that God put on flesh and became a human being is actually going to exalt him above angels. And you need to know this to the Hebrew believers and to the church in Shenandoah Junction. And you need to understand that this Jesus, ah, he's captain salvation. And so let's uh, think about one or, one or two more things. I think, and it would help you, I took the time to write this in the notes, number four, it will help you to see chapter two, verses one through four. Let's read those right now. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. He's warning them not to drift away. You see, they want to leave this wonderful, lovely Lord Jesus Because, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's not as great as angels, so I don't know if I should follow him. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will, with eyewitnesses and wonderful miracles in the book of Acts. They verified that this Jesus was who he said he was. What you could do is you could take your pen and you could put a box around verses 1 through 4 and it'll just help your thinking in this passage. Even though he's still arguing about angels and he uses the word of angels in that passage. But take a box, box out verses 1 through 4 and write in the margin next to it, warning passage number 1. You see, there's going to be five warning passages. It's like the Hebrew The writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews does this. It's like he gets to writing and he gets to writing and then something hits him and he stops and he gives this intense warning. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. Don't stop following Christ. That's what he's just done. It's sort of a parenthesis in his writing. And now verse five, he again picks up arguing with the Hebrew believers, I don't mean arguing in a negative way, but I mean presenting his arguments that they should not give up on Jesus because of a theological problem in their brain thinking somehow angels are superior. Because they're not. In fact, he's going to show them that it, it did not make Jesus unworthy to follow by becoming a human. And he begins his argument by talking about humankind, number one in our Rome, he's going to argue in two levels. First of all, Roman number one, he wants them to know that God's plan for mankind is more important than they think. What God has intended for humans is more important than you think. The Hebrew believers think that humans have blown it, a bunch of sinful people, not even as good as angels. And then God becomes a human No, you need to understand that the way things are right now isn't the way they're always going to be. And God has a plan for humankind, redeemed ones especially, that is unbelievable. It's it's very credible. Let's look at that first in our text, verses 5 through 8. He begins, he goes back to arguing about people and Christ being superior to angels by saying, verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of what we speak in subjection to angels. I've been telling you that there's a world to come, a time to come, and listen to me. If angels are so important, how come he didn't put angels in charge of that world? He did not. He put humans in charge of that world. Immediately then, he wants to quote scripture to them, and he says, your Bible might say, and it says somewhere, or someone once said, I'm preaching out of the New King James translation by request of our Bible quiz team where 35 of them are memorizing this book, our teenagers. Verse 6, but one testified, a person testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor though and you set him over the works of your hands and you have put all things in subjection under his feet For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. I think the pronoun hymns in there, he is Jesus, the hymns are human. 
He's put all things under these humans, but he says at the end of verse 8, we do not yet see all of these things put under him, man, but we will. All right, let's take a look at that. Here's the idea. You think it's you think you don't want to follow Jesus because he came, became human and humans are inferior to angels. And if humans are inferior to angels and Jesus is a human, why would I follow Jesus? Because I love angels. I think they're great. Well, let me interrupt you and say, the writer says, you have no idea what God has planned for mankind. In fact, mankind are more important than you think. And so he's defining reality of what humans are, what redeemed ones are going to be. He's defining this reality by looking to the future kingdom. I take it to be a reference to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign and rule of Christ on earth where humans and his church will help administrate and rule and there will be a populated earth there, but we will have dominion over them and the earth itself. So he reminds them, first of all, of their original responsibility. The original responsibility, verses 6, 7, and 8. This is a quote from David in Psalm chapter 8. He's evidently out underneath the stars or he's enjoying the beautiful outdoors. He recognizes God's creation and he says, he's the one who testified at a certain place. The writer is just pointing them to scripture that they would have been very familiar with. What is man that you are mindful of him talking to God? Or even the son of man that you would take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now this passage has application in other places to Christ himself. In this passage he's applying it directly to human beings. And set him over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet. I think he's talking specifically about human beings here. You see let's take a minute and let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 really quickly. I told you this is a hard text and you got to stay with me. Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse 26. Hold your finger or your pen in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. So when God created the earth, okay, think about it. When God created the earth and he created humans and put them in the garden, God had a plan. There was no sin that had corrupted and God's plan for humans was to rule over his created universe, to have dominion over it, for everything to be under his control and under his feet, and everything to be useful to him, for him to control all of this. Look at what he, God told him in Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them, and God said... To them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he goes on to say, I've given you everything, and I want you to have dominion over it all, control it all. But what happened? What happened was is that Adam sinned and the wheels fall off of God's plan, so to speak. God never lost control. He had a plan all along. 
But Adam sinned. It's like Adam was crowned with a crown of glory to rule over as the king of the created universe. He lets a serpent deceive him. He chooses to disobey God. He takes his crown, throws it in the mud, and he lives far below what God has asked him to be and appointed him to be. And because of sin, he is now struggling to reclaim his original position. The earth is infested with thorns and sin and rust and garbage. And nothing is the way it's supposed to be. But man was intended to rule over this. In fact, on the way back to Hebrews, if you were to read in Psalm 8, this exact quote, what we just read, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would visit him, why would you come to these people? Let me read Psalm 8 and you'll pick up Genesis 1 in there. Psalm 8, beginning with verse 4 says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. Okay, we are contained in time and space. Angels have very access to the throne of God. Angels never die. Humans die. So in a way, we're made lower than the angels for now. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. That's why you made humans. God made mankind to have dominion over the work of his hands, and you have put all things under his feet. And here it is. This part, that's where the Hebrew writer stopped quoting. In Psalm 8, David said, All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How could it be that you could do this and that man could be over all of this? So you see, God's original responsibility given to man, man fails. So what he's talking about here, letter B in your notes, is future reality. It's a future reality And his point is that God established man, not angels, for the purpose of ruling over all of creation. Not angels, but man. Okay? And so look what he says. He says in uh, verse 8b again, notice this. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Not yet. Not yet is man back in this position. So back to our argument of the book. The writer knows that the Hebrew believers are a little bit down on Jesus because he became a human. And humans, they're sinful. And they're not that, and angels have greater capacities. But the writer says, no, you don't understand. He's going to be restored to his rightful place, yet future. And he is superior to angels, not inferior. And in fact, if you let your eyes go back to verse 14 of chapter 1, now we use this verse for comfort. Chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation? That's talking about angels. Are they not ministering spirits to to people who inherit salvation, the church? We think that's great. We have angels. It is. But what his point in the writing of it is, is that, look, angels are designed to serve humans. They're subservient. Angels are subservient. So the point here again, God established man, not angels, for the purpose of ruling over all creation. In fact, angels are subservient to mankind. Chapter 1, verse 14. 
Did you kind of follow that? I think it's a hard chapter. Number two. Number two. God's plan for Christ is more impressive than you think. All right? Okay? So you're down on humans. They're lesser than angels. But listen, God's plan is more important for them than you think. And you're down on Christ because he became a human and humans are lesser than angels. But I'm telling you, God's plan, the writer says, for Christ is way more impressive than you think. You're thinking too lowly here, he's telling them. So this is reality defined in the past at the incarnation when Christ was born. How could God put on flesh? How could he lay in a manger? Helpless, babe. You see how unimpressive that is to the Hebrew believers? Angels would be more powerful than that. And you want me to trust my life to this Christ? So this is reality defined by the past. What did Christ accomplish in the incarnation? And why did Christ bother to become human? Why did God have this plan? So what I think the writer's doing now with the rest of the chapter is he's basically showing them all of the benefits of the incarnation. You're down on Christ because he was a human. Humans are going to rule the universe, the created universe someday. Don't sell them short. And furthermore, Christ has this impressive role that was necessary for the salvation of humans that are indeed superior to angels. Angels are subservient. They're designed to serve us. They're not ahead of us. They're behind us. So let's look at the text again. We're in verse 9 now. So he interrupts this idea that he left nothing put under man. We do not see it yet. It's not yet that he's put all things under him. But, verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. He, too, put on flesh. He, too, captured himself, hemmed himself in to time and space. He made himself a little lower than the angels for the purpose, you could say, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So you think low of Jesus and high of angels because he put on flesh, but he did it to taste death for everyone. And you need to know that the word taste there doesn't mean sip. Like, let me taste it. It means that he he drank it. He took it. Number one, reason of the seven that I'm going to list for the incarnation in the next six minutes. That means we have less than one minute per point. Once again, you see why I'm the senior pastor of this church, because after 32 years of preaching, I can just fit everything in just right. First of all, letter A, that a substitutionary death would be available to all that a substitutionary death would be available. Look what he said. He tasted death for all people. Listen, God could not come and die. You can't kill God. God going to show up and die? No. He had to put on flesh and become a human, and he was 100% human because humans can die. And so he came to die to taste death for all, he did it to substitute into our place. And he had to put on a human body. So don't stop following Jesus because he identified with humans. Understand that he identified with humans to save you. It was necessary. Number two, letter B. Christ alone then is the, 
is the captain of our salvation. Look what he says in verse 10. For it was fitting, Christ tasting death was fitting for him, appropriate, you could use the word appropriate, for him, it was right, for for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So he's, that's Christ. You could look at like Colossians 1.16. All things were made by him and for him. So this Christ that they're thinking about walking away from, it was appropriate or fitting for him, verse 10, even though for him whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The first thing I want you to notice in that verse is letter B, that Christ alone, the one who made all things and for whom are all things, he's the captain of our salvation. Very quickly, the the NASB, New American Standard Bible translates that, and NIV translates that the author of our salvation, the one who originated it and wrote it, The Net Bible, which is an accurate uh, Greek-based text, New Testament, writes, and it's a very good translation for the word that's translated in here, the captain of our salvation. It writes, the pioneer of our salvation. The pioneer, the one who treaded the way, took his machete, hacked his way through, and made a way for everybody else. He pioneered it. The ESV says, the founder of our salvation. It's the word picture embedded in the truth of the word. It's the word picture of a dangerous passage or a, or a wild raging river and somebody risks their life with a rope and swims across the river. They pioneer the way. They author the way we're going to go. They, they, they develop it. They founded the way and they stretch the rope and then everybody else can just cross on the rope bridge. He went stretched the way. He found it. He pioneered the way. That's what it means by captain salvation. He's the one who engineered salvation for us. You think angels are important? This guy put on flesh so that he could A, substitute in for us so I don't have to die, taste death for everyone. Secondly, that he alone is the captain of our salvation. Letter C, going on through verses 11 through 13. Oh, wait a minute. Did you notice the last sentence in verse 10? If you didn't, if you did, you're stuck on it, maybe. Look what it says. In bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Wow. He's talking about Jesus being matured or made perfect through his sufferings. And I really didn't know what that meant. So I'm just going to read to you what Wearsby says. Here's what Wearsby says. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, this statement does not suggest that Jesus Christ was imperfect when he was here on earth. The word translated perfect means complete, effective, adequate. Jesus could not have become an adequate savior and high priest had he not become man and suffered and died. And that's the argument that the writer is using. You need to understand that this was necessary for him to become this adequate savior. Letter C, we're moving on to verses 11 through 13. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, your your Bible might say, um, he who is holy and he who makes holy are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. And then he quotes other scriptures, 12 and 13, I'm not gonna reread them, but the point is simply this. 
you're not impressed with Jesus. You are impressed with angels. You're thinking about running away from Jesus because of Nero and because you love angels and you're going to go back to Judaism and because you're not impressed with Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, he's the captain of your salvation. And not only that, in providing this salvation for you, you become one with Christ. You become joint joined together with Christ so that Jesus would call us his brothers and we could call Jesus our elder brother. That's interesting. That we are so identified in his death and if he hadn't become a human, we could not identify with him like this. I wanted to take time to look up Galatians 3 and Ephesians 2. If you're interested in this subject, look it up. And that's where he says... We don't identify as slave or free or male or female, but we are all just one in Christ. It's one reason why, to the disappointment of some, there will be no marriage in heaven. We're all just going to be one in Christ. He identifies and we become where Jesus can get off the cross. We put our faith and trust in Christ. He looks at us and he says, you're now my brother. You're my sister. We are family. We are one in Christ. It's an identity By the way, on that point, uh, no, letter D now, he also then did this to destroy the devil's work, that the devil's work would be destroyed. Look what he says in 14. Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. That is not John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 8. Below that it is 1 John. Make sure you correct your notes. In Genesis chapter 3, immediately after Adam sinned and the curse was put upon humankind, you have what we call the proto-evangelium stated, where it says that he he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Remember that passage? Talking about Satan will nip the heel of the Lord Jesus. He'll get him on the cross, but Christ is going to rise victorious and crush his head. Immediately, the first prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after man lost his crown of glory over all of creation and sin takes over all of creation, man's crown will be restored. But one of the reasons Christ became flesh, you Hebrew believers and you Shenandoah Junction believers, is that he came to destroy the devil's work. Praise God. It doesn't mean that he annihilated the devil, but it means that he rendered him ineffective. It's not that he annihilated him. The devil still exists seeking whom he may devour, but he rendered it ineffective for those who are in Christ. We must not have any fear of the devil. We respect him, but we don't fear him. Letter E, that the fear of death and the bondage of sin would be broken. Look at verse 15. And he would release those through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. If I said right now, raise your hand if you're afraid to die. If you were honest, hands would go up all over this room. We don't want to die. You know, like going to funerals. I've seen grown men sit off to the side in a funeral home because they refuse to go up and look in the box at a dead body. I don't like this. I don't like it here. Death and sin has bondage on us. And when Jesus died on the cross, 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, Oh, death, when he resurrected, Oh, death, where is your sting grave? Where is your victory Praise be to God, the victory is through our Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer have to fear death or sin. Letter F, that the propitiation for sin would be accomplished. 
Verse 17, therefore in him, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean? Propitiation means, propitiation means that Christ willingly took upon himself the sins of the world, sacrificed himself so that God's wrath would be born on him. He therefore satisfied the demands of God's holiness and God's justice. So God cannot look at sin because he's holy. He can't even look at it. If you're sinful, you can't go in the presence of God. God can't look at sin. Not only that, God cannot ignore sin because he's the perfect judge and he will judge sin. So not only can he not look at sin, he cannot ignore sin. He has to judge sin. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he took the sins of the world upon himself. And so God judged him for our sin. Every rapist, every murder, every lie, every teenager who looked at his mom and said, I wish you would die. Every horrible thing, every stupid thing you ever did when you were drunk in college. Jesus took it upon himself as though it were him that did that. And God poured out his wrath on Jesus. And Jesus and God was satisfied with the atonement, with the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so he no longer looks at believers in him who follow Christ with wrath, but he looks on them with favor. Because Christ, that old word propitiation or atoning sacrifice. So propitiation is Christ sacrificing himself to bear the wrath of God, satisfying the demands of God's holiness and justice, which enables God to look at the repentant sinner with favor. I really like that concept. Do you? When you are in Christ, when you are in Christ, God no longer looks at you with the eye of wrath or justice or looking away because of his holiness, he looks on you with favor as a brother or sister of Jesus himself. Family. He goes on to say that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The seventh reason, letter G, why Jesus took on flesh, which the Hebrews were critical of because they thought flesh was lower than angels, is that we would have a merciful and faithful high priest. And you're going to walk away from this guy? You have a representation at the very right hand of God and he is merciful. Because he put on flesh, he now can relate to everything fleshly. Before, he couldn't say that. I mean, in his omniscience, yes. But in experience, no. But God knows fear. Jesus knows fear. He knows anger. He knows, he knows fatigue. He knows weariness. He knows discouragement, the temptation for those things. He knows what the flesh feels like. And when we go to Jesus, he, you go to Jesus with your problems, and you got a lot of them. There's a lot of problems represented here this morning. He doesn't say, ah, come back another day. That's not a big deal. He says, he says, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you feel. He's a merciful high priest. So what's the point? The point is, let your eyes go back to the text first. Verse 16 is key. Look at verse 16. We skipped over it because we're hurrying. 
For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. In other words, you're going to walk away from Jesus because he's not as cool as angels. But I'm telling you, God through Christ didn't do any of this for angels. He did it all for humans. And why would you reject that? So the point is, all of this was done for people, not angels. In becoming a human, Christ did not discredit himself. Rather, he accomplished the wonderful plan of salvation that God planned in ultimately restoring man to his former glory. Conclusion, number one, the reality of my future should affect the way I live now. The reality of my future, that I am going to rule and reign with Christ, I should act like it now. First Corinthians 6 that I put there, Paul's whole argument is based on that. Christians taking each other to court to let a pagan judge rule. And he says, forget that stuff. You're going to rule over him someday in the future kingdom. Why would you go to him now? So their present day decision-making is altered by the, what the reality is of their future. Number two, my understanding of what God did for me through Christ should be the key for my spiritual and emotional stability. You have a guilty conscience from stupid things you did. You're having trouble with victory over sin. You're having trouble with all kinds of things. Listen, you really, you really don't need a therapist. You need to understand who you are in Christ. And that will be the key to your stability. All that he has done for you in the incarnation. Thirdly, my victory over sin and temptation is found in Jesus Christ. My victory over sin and temptation is found in Jesus Christ. He is there, a merciful a merciful high priest who can relate to us to help us. He is Captain Salvation. Praise God. Let's stand and pray. Father, would you, would you through your Holy Spirit continue to minister to my church through this text, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. You're welcome to stay and hear it again if you want.